John 6, verses 60 to 65. Does this cause you to stumble? John 6, 60. Many therefore of his disciples, when they heard this said, this is a difficult statement, who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? What then if you should behold the Son of Man ascending where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, For this reason I have said to you, that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray that we will learn from these words not to grumble about your truths. We pray, Father, that instead you would grant to us the repentance and the faith that we need to endure, to increase in faith, and to grow in the things of God. Grant it to us, Lord. We know that we are always dependent on you, on your goodness, your grace that comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. We are your people, and therefore, Father, increase our faith, for we trust in you. And we ask in Christ's name. Amen. This is indeed what we are reading about here in our paragraph, verses 60 to 65. We have the crowds, or the multitudes, who had been fed 5,000 of them, 5,000 men, plus women and children, they meet up with Christ and they have this discourse with him or dialogue with him as he's explaining himself and his ministry, explaining the way of salvation and eternal life, that they must believe in him. They must partake of him. They must, figuratively speaking, eat his flesh and drink his blood. He means by eating and drinking, but he means by that, to believe in him. It becomes very clear that he means to believe in him. This is what they don't understand and they don't comprehend. They refuse to believe in him. Now, the fact that he has been telling them that they must believe in him is very, very evident, even though he uses many illustrations to describe this true belief. The fact that he's been telling them to believe begins at verse 29, where he said, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger. And he who believes in me shall never thirst. 36, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Verse 40, and for this is the will of my father that everyone who beholds the son and believes in him may have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. 47, verse 47, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. He who believes has eternal life. And in verse 64, when he knows that they are grumbling, he says, but there are some of you who do not believe. Some of you who do not believe, verse 69, when he is with the 12, he says, or or Simon Peter answers, we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. The fact that he's been calling on them to believe is very evident here with the use of metaphors and illustrations to describe what true belief is, in what they should believe, in whom they should put their trust However, we find the, uh, at the end of this dialogue in verses 60 to 65, they still refuse to believe. And their unbelief is manifested in grumbling, in complaining, in murmuring, in saying they don't like what is being said. They don't like what's being said because they don't have faith. They don't like what's being said because they don't believe. If they believed, they would rejoice. If they believed, they would know how good it is, what a blessing it is to have eternal life in Christ. 
Because they are rejecting eternal life in Christ, they refuse to believe it, therefore they grumble, therefore they complain. We see in verse 60 that they are called his disciples. It says, many therefore of his disciples, many of his disciples. The word disciple is used. The Apostle John is describing false disciples, and he's Assuming that we will correctly conclude that when he describes somebody called a disciple, that we're describing fake disciples, false disciples, bogus believers, those who do not actually believe, yet it's manifested in some ways that they are following him. In some ways they understand. In some ways they are uh, professing faith in Christ. We know from their own lips, they said in verse 14, John 6, 14, this is of a truth, the prophet who is to come into the world. They knew that, they had faith in that, but it wasn't enough faith because it wasn't true faith. It wasn't faith unto salvation. It wasn't faith that redeemed their souls from sin. This is an example, or this this group is an example of false disciples. Disciples who are called disciples because they have some evidence, they follow Christ in some ways, but not in the true way. This is one of the main points that John the Apostle is illustrating throughout this book of John. He's been illustrating this time and time again. We see a specific example with the crowds here in our paragraph. Next time we'll see in verses 66 to to 71, that he's going to even do the same among his 12 disciples. Because after the crowds all leave, because they're grumbling, they don't believe, he even illustrates this among his own 12 disciples, verses 66 to 71. It says, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. He means, John the Apostle means, in the previous paragraph, they all walked away. That was the end of that discussion that dialogue between Christ and the people. Then Christ turns his attention to the 12. And who are the 12 called? They're called the apostles. They're called the disciples, are they not? They're even called the chosen. Here, notice verse 67. Jesus therefore said to the 12, you do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life and we have believed and come to know have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Here, in verse 70, Jesus chose the twelve. So we might say, the 12 were chosen by Christ to be his disciples and apostles. Yes, but we have to qualify it as even Jesus qualified it right after he said that in verse 70. And yet one of you is a devil. I chose 12 of you to follow me, 12 of you to perform miracles, 12 of you to preach the gospel, 12 of you to learn from me for three years. I chose 12 of you to represent me to others. Yes, I did. But one of you is a devil, meaning one is an unbeliever. Now, some wonder if Judas was actually an unbeliever. Um, We will expand on this next time, but just a brief survey of this teaching within the book of John. John 13, John 13, we will see that Judas was, until the day he died, an unbeliever. Judas was an unbeliever. John 13. Here, Jesus is washing his disciples' feet. And he's using this as an illustration of cleanness, their souls being clean. Verse 10, 13, 10, Jesus said to him, Simon Peter, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. 
not all of you, this is another parallel to John 6. They are clean in that they were all redeemed. That's why he says they are completely clean. However, their feet need to be washed occasionally, meaning you have your daily sins that must be forgiven and cleansed. But one of them doesn't even have the cleanness of being completely clean. One of them. He knew the one who would betray him. Who is it? Verse 18, 13, 18. I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Now he's in this upper room, washing his disciples' feet, eating the Last Supper, instituting the Lord's Supper, right? He's, all, he's here doing these things with the 12. Only the 12 are there. One of them who eats the bread with him will lift up his heel, that is, betray Christ in order to fulfill the Scriptures. These are the ones that are chosen, but one was not chosen unto eternal salvation. One more place, John 17. John 17. How do we know that Judas never repented from the time of his betrayal until the time of his death? How do we know that he did not repent? John 17, verse 12, 17, 12. Jesus prays this to the Father. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them. And not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. He guarded them, and not one of them perished. He uses the past tense. Not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Why does he use the past tense? Because the eleven were saved according to the appointment of God and the word of God in Scripture. But one of them was never saved, but was always ordained to perish before the foundation of the world and according to the Scripture. That's why he says it in the past tense. Both both of their destinies, the group of both of them, the eleven and the one, they were already determined to go in one direction or the other, either to eternal life or eternal condemnation. It was one or the other. That's why none of them perished except the one, the son of perdition. And he means Judas, as we saw from chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 71. That was the one who was going to betray him. This is an example we have within the same passage of Judas Iscariot. A couple of more examples of John the Apostle showing false disciples. One is in John chapter 2. John chapter 2, verse 23. John 2, 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, beholding his signs which he was doing. But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to bear witness concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. It says many believed because they saw his miracles, his miraculous signs. Many believed in him. But Jesus did not trust them. Jesus did not believe in them because he knew it was a phony belief. It says in verse 24, For he knew all men, and because he did not need anyone to bear witness concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. He knew that they believed, they believed that he was a miracle worker, but they didn't believe unto their salvation. They didn't believe to save their souls from sin. They didn't believe he would die on the cross for their sins. They didn't believe like that and have actual salvation. That's why Jesus did not believe them. Jesus did not entrust himself to them. If they truly did believe, wouldn't Christ also believe them? Of course he would. He would believe them 
and protect them in his hand so that none of the sheep ever perish. John 10, 27 to 30. Okay, one more example in the book of John. John 8, John 8, 31. Another example of some people who are said to believe, but this illustrates false belief. John 8, 31. Jesus, therefore, was saying to those Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Notice there. It says they believed him, but then he challenges them, if you abide, if you remain, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. But they complain. They don't think they need to be freed of anything. Verse 33, they answered him, we are Abraham's offspring and have never yet been a slave to anyone. How is it that you say you shall become free? They did not understand their own slavery to sin, which is what Jesus says in verse 34. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. You are a slave of sin and you claim to be free. You've not been enslaved to anyone. You're enslaved to your own sin. Your own flesh you're a slave of. Furthermore, they're living under the Roman government, the yoke of the Romans, so they are slaves of the foreigners, the Romans. They can't deny that, and yet they have the audacity, the blindness to say, we're not a slave to anybody. Well, they turn up the heat against Christ. They turn up the heat against Christ. Verse 41, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. That is God. They say God is their father. They were not born of fornication, implicating Christ as being born of fornication which is what the Jews throughout history have said. That is, Christ is the the offspring of a Roman soldier and Mary. The Roman soldier and Mary committed fornication, and that's how Christ came into the world. That's a Jewish doctrine. But Jesus says to them, verse 44, you are are of your father the devil. The father, uh, your father is the devil. So they're not true believers. If God is not their true father, the devil is. And then verse 46, which one of you convicts me of sin if I speak the truth? Why do you not believe me? They don't believe him, Jesus says. But in verse 31, John said they do believe in him. They do believe in a fake way, in a bogus way. They believe certain things about Jesus, but they don't believe what they need to believe about Christ and themselves to be redeemed is the point. We see further in 48, the Jews answered and said to him, do we not rightly say that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? They accuse him of not being a Jew, so he could not be the true Christ. And they also accuse him of being demon-possessed. And finally, verse 59 Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Yes, John is describing to us, and John's not unique. We'll see next time from other scriptures throughout the Bible. The Bible is constantly reminding us of what true faith is and what false faith is. Always comparing and contrasting true faith and false faith. Remember, we read, we read Psalm 106. There it said they believed his words. They sang his praise. And then it says they quickly forgot him. And they believed for a time, and then they quickly did not believe and grumbled and complained for 40 years. In fact, from Numbers 14, we read that when they spied out the land for 40 years and rejected that land, Not only the the spies, the ten spies and the people, the rest of the soldiers, when they all rejected it, they were cursed with death in the wilderness because they didn't have true belief. They had temporary, fickle faith, but they didn't have a true faith. The same here in John 6. These are the ones who said, 
This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? A difficult statement, a hard statement, maybe even translated a harsh statement. A harsh statement, a hard statement, a difficult statement. How can anybody tolerate listening to these words of Christ? That's what they're saying. We can't put up with it anymore. We can't bear with it anymore. It's too hard for us. It's grading us the wrong way. We don't like it, is what they say. Right? Do true believers act like this? No. When true believers hear the Word of God, though they may not initially understand it, though they might have initial confusion, they're not spitting out fire against Christ and the Word of Christ, right? They're not complaining and criticizing. They're not murmuring and grumbling and disputing. They're not causing divisions when they hear it. They let it sink in. They contemplate it. They pray about it. They seek the Scriptures about it. And then they believe it eventually, right? But they're not characterized by grumbling and disputing. No, unbelievers are characterized by grumbling and disputing. Is that not what Numbers 14 said? It said that they were grumbling, they were complaining, they were murmuring, and that showed their unbelief. It's a characteristic of unbelievers to grumble and to complain about the things of God. Jude 16, Jude 16 teaches us the same. He says, These are grumblers finding fault, following after their own lusts. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. That's a perfect description of unbelievers right there in one sentence. They grumble, they find fault, they follow after their own lusts or evil desires, whatever those evil desires are. They speak arrogantly, they flatter people. Why do they flatter? They flatter because they want to exploit them, take advantage of them. They want the upper hand in the relationship and they want the upper hand so that they can get their way. That's why people flatter one another. In verse 19, these are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. They cause divisions. They're worldly-minded and devoid of the Spirit. If they are devoid of the Spirit, they're not believers. If they're worldly-minded, they're not believers. If they cause divisions, they're not believers. Didn't these people walk away? So when they walked away, were they not causing a division? They complained in the presence of Christ and his disciples, and they walked away. It says in John 6, 66, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. They walked away. And if you still have your place in Jude, go back a couple of pages to 1 John. Speaking of others who walk away, when they hear things they don't like. 1 John 2, 19. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out in order that it might be shown that they all are not of us. They went out. So they're not assembling with us anymore. But they were not really of us. They didn't really belong to us. If they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But they went out in order that it might be shown that they all are not of us. When these divisions happen, then it illustrates to the remnant who the true believers are. It illustrates to them. So don't be discouraged, by the way, when that happens. This is the way it happens. But they are the ones who cause divisions. They are the ones who walk away from the unity of the fellowship. They walk away and create a division. He who seeks his own desire separates himself and he quarrels against all sound wisdom or all wisdom. Proverbs 18.1 teaches us. He seeks his own desire who walks away or separates himself. When the true believers are gathered and we separate, 
We are the ones who are causing division. Now, let's explore this complaint a little bit more. This is a difficult statement, a difficult or a harsh statement. Why? Because Jesus expected them to believe in him for the forgiveness of their sins. And if you have to believe in Christ for the forgiveness of sins, then you have to give up sin. It's that simple. If Jesus says, thus says the Lord, and he points out sin, then those who don't want to reject their sin, those who love their sin, will say, don't say that. I don't want to hear that. It's too harsh. That's the dissonance that comes into the heart and mind of an unrepentant sinner. They don't want to hear that this sin or that sin is a sin, so they walk away. They don't want to hear, thus says the Lord, with authority, and they don't want to be confronted of their sin, about their sin. They don't want that to happen. They would rather hear flattery. They would rather hear kind words or nice words according to their estimation. They would rather hear something that would smooth it over. They would rather hear someone sprinkle holy water on their sin, baptize their sin, christen their sin. They would rather have something like that happen from a religious man, a religious authority, especially if he claims or does have knowledge of the Bible. They want the religious man, the religious authority to say, it's okay, go your way, go in peace. That's what they want to hear. It's not new. Isaiah chapter 30. Isaiah chapter 30. Verse 9. Isaiah 30 and verse 9. Isaiah describes the people. Isaiah 30 verse 9. For this is a rebellious people, false sons, sons who refuse to listen to the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, you must not see visions, and to the prophets, you must not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us pleasant words. Prophesy illusions. Get out of the way. Turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Who are these people? They are rebellious, but were they not called the people of God? Yes, but he's qualifying who they really are. They are rebellious people. He calls them false sons. Were they not called sons, sons of God? Yes, they were, but now he's calling them false sons. Why? Because they refuse to listen to the words of God. And how are the words of God delivered? Verse 10, by the seers and the prophets. The seers and the prophets, those who had the words of God and preached the words of God to them. They, in fact, told them, stop it. You might say, thus says the Lord, but we're telling you, stop it. Stop it, stop it, stop it. We don't want to know what's right. We want you to speak pleasant words and illusions. Pleasant words and illusions. They don't want words that sound difficult and harsh. They want words that are pleasant. You're fine just the way you are. Yes, Christ accepts you as you are, and there's nothing more after that. Yes, that's what they want to hear. They want to hear God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. You just need to be one with Him and affirm faith in Christ and the love of God will be yours, and you will have a wonderful life, right? Your best life now. These are the kinds of sentiments and words people use to describe how right now and in the afterlife, you have it all set. You have it all set now and forever, as long as you profess faith in Christ. Those are the pleasant words of today. And even in the ancient days, People wanted to hear those things. And here too, he says, or they say, prophesy illusions. Illusions. An illusion is not reality, right? An illusion is not reality. People will rather have illusions preached to them 
lies and deceit preached to them because they sound good. They don't care if it's real. They don't care if it's true. They want that which is an illusion, that which is not reality. Yes, many people believe that way. If you witness and you say these things to them, they will eventually say something like this to you. I, don't, I know it's not right, but that's not what I want to believe. They know that, and they say things like that. They will even say, I know he's, uh, such and such is a lie, but it makes me feel good anyways. Yes, they will say words like that to you. And if you keep it up, if you persist in speaking the truth, Either they will walk away or they'll tell you to get out of the way. In Isaiah's case, they said in verse 11, get out of the way, turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. They had the audacity to tell Isaiah, go away. Go away from here. We don't want to hear you anymore. So they separated from Isaiah. Yes, they hate him who reproves in the gate. They abhor him who speaks with integrity. Amos 5, 10. Also, Amos 7, 12. Then Amaziah said to Amos, Go, you seer, flee away to the land of Judah, and there eat bread, and there do your prophesying. Amaziah, the false priest, is saying the same. Go away from here, Amos. We don't want to hear what you have to say anymore. These are the people who would, after having all the truth presented and even the miracles presented, would still say, this is harsh, this is difficult, who can listen to it? They did that with Christ also. In Numbers 14, 14, 11, how long will this people refuse to believe in me? After they have seen all my signs, all my signs, all my miracles, they refuse to believe. It happened to Christ too during his incarnation. They refused to believe in him, though they saw him tangibly with their own eyes. They heard him audibly with their own ears. He was right there. They could touch him with their own hands. And they saw everything he did and everything he preached. They heard, yet they wouldn't believe. Because they were fake. They were fake. Verse 61. John 6, 61. But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, Does this cause you to stumble? Jesus knew he had knowledge because of his deity. He had knowledge that his disciples were grumbling. Yes, he could see them talking to each other, whispering in one another's ears, softly saying, murmuring, disputing, grumbling with each other, that there was some kind of problem, but he knew exactly why they were doing it. They weren't doing it because they were consulting one another to fear God, to believe. They were doing it because they did not want to believe, and Jesus knew that they were, in fact, grumbling, and they were being caused to stumble. Wait a minute. Did Jesus preach something to cause them to stumble? I thought, I thought, don't you think, or haven't you heard, that whenever we preach, the only purpose of preaching the good news of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel, is for people to be saved. That's the only result we should expect. After all, we have something very good. We have eternal life. And that should never cause anybody to turn away from it. But here Christ says, it caused them to stumble. It caused them to stumble to fall. Is that not one of the reasons we preach? Yes. It may sound new to you. You might be amazed and even perplexed at this. But yes, this is one of the reasons why we preach the gospel. One of the reasons is so that there is a distinction. There will be a few who believe, but the vast majority of the people will not believe, and it will be the cause of their stumbling. It will be the cause of their stumbling. Romans 9, 
Romans 9, 30 to 33. Romans 9, 30 to 33. Not only are the words of the Bible a cause of stumbling, but Christ Himself is a cause of stumbling. Christ Jesus Himself is someone who causes many people to stumble. Romans 9.30 What shall we say then that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith? But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. Just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And he who believes in him will not be put to shame. Who is Christ? He's the stone of stumbling and rock of offense. Peter reiterates this point. 1 Peter 2. 1 Peter 2. He shows us here in 1 Peter 2, verses 6 to 8, that there are two outcomes, two major outcomes to preaching the word of Christ. When we preach Christ, he produces two results. 1 Peter 2.6 For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him shall not be put to shame. This precious value then is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word and to this doom they were also appointed. Two outcomes. Like Paul said in Romans 9, Peter reiterates this here too. This truth here. When the word of Christ is preached, there will be these two results. A stone of stumbling and rock of offense to those who disbelieve, to those who are disobedient, to those who were appointed to the doom they deserve. But on the other hand, those who were appointed to believe, they believe, and this stone is a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and we will not be put to shame because of our faith in Christ. 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 also teaches us these two consequences, these two results when we preach the word. 2 Corinthians 2, 14 to 17. 2, 14 to 17. But thanks be to God who always leads us in his triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma from death to death, to the other, an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? For we are not like many peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. When we preach, there are those being saved, verse 15, and those who are perishing. Those who are perishing are an aroma from death to death. They are dead and they will continue in death unto the second death, the lake of fire. To the other, an aroma from life to life. They receive life and they continue in this life. If we were peddling the word of God, guess what we would have? We would have most people who hear it. 99% of the people who hear it who would believe it if we peddled it. That is, if we spoke pleasant words, if we prophesied illusions. We would have 99% of our hearers who believe it. But because we preach the truth as Christ preached the truth in John 6, we have 99% of our hearers rejecting it and walking away. As Jesus did, only the 12 remained and one of the 12 was Judas Iscariot. 
That's the consequence of preaching the truth. It causes most people to stumble because they don't want the authoritative preaching against their sin exposed because they love their sin. They'd rather attach themselves to their sins than attach themselves to Christ the Savior. Verse 62, John 6, 62. What then if you should behold the Son of Man ascending where he was before? Here he says, he's speaking of his ascension. Now, they found it amazing that he would claim to have descended from heaven since he was born in the world, since he was born of Joseph and Mary, according to the way they understand him to be the son of Joseph in verse 42. He was not literally the son of Joseph. He was legally the son of Joseph, but not literally, biologically, the son of Joseph. Well, they find it hard to imagine, believe that this Jesus of Nazareth actually came down from heaven and that God had endowed him with his words and with his works, his miraculous works, for them to believe in him. Because they didn't want such um, a low-class man a carpenter from a no-name town or village preaching and having exclusive rights to the way of salvation. They didn't want to think of it that way. They would rather have the king in Jerusalem, somebody with lots of wealth, someone with a big reputation to believe in that one instead of in Christ. So Jesus' lowliness caused them to stumble. What else is it that will cause them to stumble? Verse 62. What then if you should behold the Son of Man ascending where he was before? His point is, even if you saw with your own eyes my ascension to heaven, you would not believe. Even if you saw my ascension, you would not believe. That's how stubborn that's how stone cold, that's how blind you are. You won't believe whatever the miracle that you see, whatever the miracle you witness, you will not believe. Remember the rich man in Luke chapter 16. The rich man wanted Lazarus to rise from the dead and go preach to the rich man's five brothers. Right? Because the rich man was in torment and Lazarus was not. And he wants Lazarus to warn them. But Abraham answers the rich man. Luke 16, 29. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, Neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. The people under Moses in Numbers 14, they saw in, at that point enough miracles. If miracles were the clincher, they saw them. Jesus in his own lifetime, he saw or he did perform many miracles and many people witnessed them. If that were the clincher, then that would be enough. There would have been many, many people saved in the time of Christ. And in the same way, the principle we learn from Luke 16, Jesus is announcing that what Abraham said to the rich man, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. If they will not listen to them, neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. The problem is not that there's lack of miracles. The problem is not that there's lack even of the Bible in a sense. They need to go to the Bible and read the Bible. That's what their problem is. And their problem resides in them. They don't have the will to believe because they have the will to sin. He who commits sin is the slave of sin, John 8 34. That's what their problem is. Even seeing the ascension will not bring about their conversion. Verse 63. John 6, 63. 
It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. The Spirit gives life. The Holy Spirit, that is what you need. You need the Holy Spirit to give you life. You lack the Holy Spirit, that's why you don't believe. That's why you grumble. That's why you won't put your faith in me. Not a new teaching. Not a new teaching at all. John 3, verse 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. If we're born of the Spirit, we are spirit or spiritual. If we are born of the flesh, all we have is the flesh. It's necessary to be born of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit has to convert one for life to reside in the one. The flesh will not produce it. It profits nothing. It produces zero. When he says nothing, he doesn't mean it, produces, it does not produce death. He knows it produces death, but he's saying you cannot have eternal life if you are relying on the flesh. Only the Spirit gives life. He is the Spirit of life. He is the Spirit of grace. He's the Spirit of truth. He is the Spirit of regeneration. This is who the Holy Spirit is. He does it, not our flesh. He already said in John 3, 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh or fleshly. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit or spiritual. Right? That's what he said earlier. He's saying it now here to the crowds. That's what they need. That's what they need from God himself. The Spirit to change them. Keep your place here and go to Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, 5. Romans 8, 5 to 8. Romans 8, 5 to 8. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God. For it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. We have one of two minds, either the mind on the flesh or the mind on the spirit. If it's the flesh, it's death. If it's the spirit, there's life and peace. Those are the only two outcomes. Those are the only two possibilities. The flesh is hostile toward God, at enmity with God, at war with God, because it does not obey the law of God. And not only does it not obey, it's not even able to obey. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. We cannot think that anything in our flesh produces anything spiritually good, anything to save our souls. Jesus reiterates when he says, the things that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. I'm talking about things that are living and spiritual. I'm not talking about fleshly things, trust in the physical or trust in your sinful self. Don't trust yourself. The source of your salvation is outside of yourselves if the Spirit is sent to give you life. Verse 64. But there are some of you who do not believe. There are some of you who do not believe. And then verse 65. And he was saying, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. As far as we know from this narrative, this is the way Jesus ends his message to them. What a way to end the message. He ends the message by saying, Some of you do not believe. And then he tells them, if you're going to believe, it depends on the Father. 
Verse 65, for this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me, like Romans 8 just said. You cannot come. The flesh profits nothing. 63, John 3, 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. It's not going to produce anything. You cannot believe in me. You cannot come to me unless the Father grants it to you. If the Father grants it to you, you will believe. Verse 37, 637, all that the Father gives me shall come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets and they all shall be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. He leaves them with the fact that they are unbelievers and that they are at the mercy of the Father. If the Father grants them mercy, they will receive mercy. If the Father grants them to come to Christ, to believe in Christ, they will believe in Christ. If the Father does not grant it, they will not come to Christ. They will not believe. It won't happen. And again in verse 64, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. Of course, the one who would betray him is in verse 71, that is Judas. One of the 12 was going to betray him. But he also knew when he fed the 5,000, he wasn't feeding them because he knew some of them would believe. He fed them because there was a need. And he also fed them because in preaching to them and in feeding them, showing them his goodness, they would become more guilty for rejecting it. He did it for those reasons. But he didn't do it because he knew they would believe. He preached to them because they needed to hear the truth. They needed to believe it. But he didn't preach it because they, he knew they would believe. Because it says he knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe. He knew from the beginning. This will also happen to us. It will also happen to us that we will come across people, most of whom or all of whom have no hope of believing. But we preach anyways. We preach anyways and perhaps it may be that God saves one out of a hundred. It might happen. But we don't go thinking that it must happen or that it's going to be 50 out of a hundred or 75 or 99 out of a hundred. We preach because we're supposed to preach. And if God's going to save someone, he will save someone. If he saves five out of a hundred, then fine. Or even 10. And even sometimes maybe even 50. He might do that. It's rare, but it might happen. Our duty is to preach just as Jesus preached. He preached the word unmixed, right? Unmixed, unmingled with human wisdom or the flesh. He just preached the truth to them. Yes, we should preach the truth in the same way, even if the situation looks like a hopeless situation. Preach the truth. You never know what God might do with that. Just do what God expects us to do faithfully. That's our duty, to faithfully sow the seed, even though many might reject that seed of the Word of God. Let's trust Him, not ourselves. Let's do it His way, no matter what the consequences are. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.